This is a case that has people scratching their heads when they hear the details all over the world. It's a strange case where a father, husband, animal sanctuary owner just disappeared after leaving his house in Tampa, Florida back in 1997 and hasn't been seen since. I don't know if Carol Baskin pulled the trigger or committed the, the murder of Don Lewis. I think Carol knows a lot more than what she said, though. Sound familiar? It should. Lewis was married to Carol Baskin at the time of his disappearance. The case featured in the Netflix quarantine hit documentary, Tiger King. For the latest on the case, I'd turn to a crowdsourcing citizen detective group that includes investigative journalists and Don's daughters. It's called the Don Lewis Cold Case Files, and it's run by this man. I am Jack Smith. I go by Ripper on Facebook group where we're looking into the case. It's Ripper Jack Media, and I'm the family spokesperson for the Don Lewis family. Now, I also reached out to Carol Baskin and her current husband, Howard. I wanted to know her side of the story, what she misses most about her missing husband, and what she thinks about the TV show. I'll share with you what she told me towards the end of the episode. But before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences and might not be for everyone. I also have some news. I sent out my first True Crime Deadline newsletter with details about how you can get free swag. If you haven't signed up yet, just go to truecrimedeadline.com. And even bigger news. The podcast once again nominated for a People's Choice Podcast Awards in two categories, politics and news and storyteller drama. So thank you, investigators, for all that you've done and for supporting the podcast and nominating us once again this year. As always, I have a shout out for investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. And some true crime recommendations for you, including murderific and resolved mysteries after this episode. So let's get started. The disappearance of Jack Don Lewis. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the social distancing studios in Las Vegas, Nevada, to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline, a podcast discussing cold cases, murder, mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now your host, a man who sings happy birthday twice when washing his hands, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for episode 27, The Mystery Surrounding Don Lewis, which takes us to Tampa, Florida, a major city on the west coast of Florida near the Gulf of Mexico. It's the third largest city in the Tampa Bay area, with about 400,000 people. It's behind Miami and Jacksonville. Tampa is home to several Fortune 500 companies, universities, sports teams, and theme parks, including Busch Gardens, and several animal sanctuaries, including, you guessed it, Big Cat Rescue, now owned by Carol Baskin and her husband Howard. The animal sanctuary was founded in 1992 by Carol and Don Lewis. The two were married to different people when they met. They had a passionate affair and ultimately divorced their spouses to officially be together. They started building wealth together, and a year after they were married, they opened the sanctuary, then called wildlife on easy street but something happened in their relationship and it's reported that the couple clashed over how the sanctuary should be run don wanted to breed cats as a business while carol wanted it as a charity as the years progressed the couple's relationship deteriorated fell apart 
She claims Lewis became obsessed with sex and trips to Costa Rica where he would have affairs. She says his mental health was deteriorating. He would rummage through dumpsters at night, hoard junk in cars on the property. She claims that he was losing his memory, oftentimes didn't know where he was, and showed early signs of Alzheimer's. However, his family and his attorney tell a different story, much different. They say Don was planning a trip to Costa Rica and making business plans in the days leading to his disappearance to move there and away from Carol, who he was frightened of. In July of 1997, Lewis filed a restraining order against his wife Carol, and it's been reported that he told his wife multiple times he wanted a divorce. On August 18, 1997, Jack Lewis, who went by Don, disappeared. What is the nuts and bolts of the case if, if someone hasn't seen the Tiger King? Depending who you talk to, there's different stories, but on August 15th is the last day he's seen from what I've gathered so far. He just disappeared. He just um, leaves. He's never seen again, never heard from again. And even this to this day, like 23 years later, he's still a, classified as a missing person. Um, I mean, that's really, you have a, a missing persons case, basically. And then you have um, a lot of his business partners who said just the week and weeks before he went missing that he said he was going to divorce his wife. Um, he was going to move to Costa Rica. He wasn't going to take his wife with him. And he's just gone. Like, nobody heard from him. He didn't leave a note, didn't take his money. Can you, is there any more that you could elaborate on a timeline for me? Tuesday or Wednesday, he picked up his van, the van that was found at the airport from Lively's Auto Repair Place. And I talked to Dale. Dale said when he came in to pick it up that Don told him he was going to Costa Rica. He actually asked Dale if he wanted to go with him. Um, but he told Dale that he was scared that Carol was going to do something to him, that he was going to divorce her. He was going to take his cats down to Costa Rica. He was moving to Costa Rica, but he wasn't taking Carol with him. This is on Tuesday or Wednesday. This would be the 12th or 13th of August. August 15th, which is a Friday, Don Lewis goes into work. He gets into work around 9.30. His secretary, Ann McQueen, says that he came in, and one of the things she said to him was like, did you lose your shaver? Because he hadn't shaved, and he normally always shaved, and he had the same clothes that he had on the day before. And she's like, are you okay? You know, like, what's wrong? And he said him and Carol had gotten into a fight Thursday night, and he slept in one of the trailers. The trailers, it's not like a mobile home. These are like these uh, truck trailers that he would cut the axles off of. So basically, it was just like a storage trailer. So he slept in one of those the night before. He was dirty. Um, they ate lunch together. He left at 1.30. He was planning on going to Miami on Monday to ship some cars out to Costa Rica. So he would have to go there, pay export fees and that kind of stuff with the barge. Um, but he left at 1.30. She had three cars or she had to get title work ready. She says around 4 o'clock on Friday, she started calling his cell phone because she needed to get the information for these cars. And he didn't answer. She kept calling. Friday evening, she starts paging him, also calling. She calls him all weekend, pages him. 
on Saturday, she starts doing her emergency pages to him. He never, ever responds back to her. Um, Carol says that she saw him Monday morning at 4 a.m. when he took her to pick up a car that she had that broke down that she took to Albertson's. Um, and then she also says she went to sleep, woke up, and it was early, like before seven, between six and seven. She remembers him standing in the doorway. The sun hadn't come up yet, and he said that he was leaving. She says that she saw him Monday morning. Nobody else saw him that weekend. Carol's the only person that has said, said that she saw him on Monday. Um, on Tuesday, well, Monday, Ann calls Carol, asks if she's seen Dawn, and um, she said, yeah, like, sure, I have whatever, but she tells Ann that the last time she saw him was Sunday morning before church, that he was being pouty, and he didn't go to church with them. That's the last time she saw him is what she tells Ann. Um, Tuesday, Ann calls Carol back again, said that she's going to call the police, and um, Carol ends up calling them and does a missing persons report. That's Tuesday the 19th. And then you fast forward to the 25th. Um, Anne hears that the missing persons report is going to be on the news. And she ends up calling the daughters to let them know. This whole time, the daughters are never contacted that their dad is missing. Carol never calls them and says, hey, have you seen your dad? Have you heard from him? No, nothing. Um, and then... As you know from the documentary on the 29th is when the office is broken into basically by Kenny Farr, Carol, and Carol's dad, where they go in and take all the documents and all that stuff. But one thing that you might want to know is on the 26th, 27th, and 28th, those days, Carol came into the office and said she would never come into that office. But those three days she came in and just sat down and had a file folder and she just flipped through this all day long. But Ann said it was at that point during that week is when Carol told her, you can quit calling Dawn's phone. I have it. And that's how Ann figured out Carol had his phone. And then in a um, in the article that the Tampa Bay Times did, she actually sent them her diary entry for August 19th, 1997. And in that diary entry, she says that Don gave her his phone when he went and picked her up at 4 a.m. when her car was broke down. So she told Anne she found it in one of the vehicles. But in her diary entry, she says Don gave it to her uh, in case he needed to call somebody. But she already had a cell phone. She admits in her diary where she's trying to call other people when her car broke down. So she already had a phone on her. But... Um, you know, somewhere between the 15th, maybe in the afternoon, you know, Ann starts calling at four o'clock. He probably got home around two, somewhere between two and four, four o'clock on the 15th. Something happened because from four o'clock after, he's never heard from again. So, um, you know, that's why they're doing the memorial on August 15th, because the family believes that's the day when um, he was killed. The, the theories that um, possibly... His wife at the time, Carol Baskin, 
um, arranged for his murder. Um, is that the main theory that's floating out there right now? Yeah, that's one of them. There's quite a few out there. Um, one is that it was premeditated and something happened. I mean, a lot of people say, um, I'll just give you some of the different scenarios that I've heard that um, he was uh, tranquilized because they have that kind of stuff you know, out there to put big cats down. And then he was um, disposed of and put in the septic system of a volunteer who lived out there. Another one is that um, he was shot and then transported to the airport where his van was found and he was dumped in the Gulf. And then another theory is that he got in a plane and he left. There's other theories where he was involved involved in the drug business because you have, you know, Tampa back in the 90s, there was a lot of drug business going on down there. It, you know, low flying planes and you have stories of like the helicopter brothers that he was involved with them and he was involved with them, but not with the drug business, but with financial business. So it was a good it was a good financial business for Don to be involved with those guys. But um, man, there's so many different theories. You know, you have the meat grinder, you have the septic system, you have the golf, you know, where his body was just dumped or it was dumped into a swamp somewhere with alligators. Um, there's a lot of them. And I'll tell you the one that people are still talking about is that Jeff Lowe, who was the guy who ended up taking over Joe Exotic's zoo, that um, Jeff Lowe and Carol's first husband, Michael Murdoch, are the same person, and that they set this up. Like, this whole thing was set up, and this was a way for <laughs> Jeff Lowe, a.k.a. Michael Murdoch, to get the property in Oklahoma City, and then eventually Carol could have it, which now she does own it, but... That's another crazy theory that's out there that, you know, these two guys are the same guy. But I don't think I don't think it's possible for those two to be the same. So you're speaking on behalf of the family. Um, they're going through a lot right now, especially with all of the media hounding them and the resurgence in the case. There's good things to that. But then also, you know, there is the emotional trauma of that again and still getting no answers. So what do they think about the theories? What is their gut telling them? Do they think that he could be alive? Do they think that it is Carol? What are their thoughts? They, they've given up hope on him being alive. They all went and did different things to see if he was alive. I mean, like Gail actually put in classified ads in, in the large papers around Florida because Don read the paper a lot. But she put ads with coded messages that only he would understand. Um, she did that for like six months. Um, Linda went around putting posters up at post offices and, you know, she had one on her car. Like, have you seen this man? And then Donna actually went to Costa Rica with her husband and put up posters down there trying to find him. But in the beginning, they, they did have some hope thinking that maybe he did just fly away or something or he was... One, one of them actually said that that he was so scared of Carol that that was the only way for, for him to get away from her was to leave the country, which is why Gail was doing the coded messages so that, you know, 
if he needed help, he could contact her, you know, to get the help. But they thought that he could have just left because he was so scared. Talk to me about what evidence is out there right now. I know that they found Van. That's the problem with this case is evidence. There just isn't any evidence. They they did find a van. It wasn't processed. I mean, the van was found and it was driven home by either Carol or her dad. And three days later, after it was returned, um, then it was processed, but there was no fingerprints in it except for the mechanic's fingerprints. But you would think that whoever drove it home, their fingerprints would have at least been in the van, but there was not any fingerprints. There was a briefcase in there, uh, the keys, and an um, English to Spanish dictionary was in the van. That was That's like the only evidence that's been published um, out there. And your group continues to find possibly new evidence in the case. What's what's something that you're working on right now? One one of the big things we're working on right now is Don Lewis had a cell phone. And, you know, cell phone records would be really good to have. But we don't have them, nor does the sheriff's department. They don't have them either, which for a missing person, uh, even back in 1997, they did have flip phones. And I mean, there was cell phone technology in 97. Um, But what we have learned is that Don's cell phone ended up with Carol. And that's, that's a pretty big piece of evidence that this is a guy who, when you talk to people, he always had his cell phone. His secretary um, said probably the only time he didn't have his cell phone is when he was with a woman. Like, you know, but she said, even then it wouldn't be surprising to me if he had it. But Carol ended up with his cell phone. And that's, um, you know, she was the last person to see him. She ended up with his phone. Um, But law enforcement, they weren't aware of that. They didn't know that. That was something that we actually told them back in April. Um, There's some other, um, there's some other evidence that, that we have, but it's not been published yet. And matter of fact, we haven't even told law enforcement about it yet because we we just need to we have to get it all figured out before we actually turn it over what did she stand to gain did, was she going to end up with everything she had a lot to gain i mean after you know he was declared dead which was five years and one day after he went missing um after that she got control of the money the will and all that but in the settlement I think with the with the daughters, I think Carol ended up with five point eight million dollars. So, um, I mean, that's a lot to gain right there. You know, the the three daughters I think split the life insurance. Actually, the three daughters and the secretary, I believe, split the life insurance policy that Don had, which was worth one point two million dollars. And I think, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think Anne might have got a couple hundred thousand dollars and the other three daughters split it or something like that. But they ended up, when we did the math, the daughters ended up getting, I think, around 13% of his estate and Carol got the rest of it. The investigation into Don's disappearance spanned from Tampa to Costa Rica. 
After his disappearance, Carol inherited $5 million in assets and the sanctuary. She had him legally declared dead in 2002, five years to the day that he went missing. And the sheriff says that Don Lewis's will was forged. But Carol is unable to be prosecuted in the forgery case because of the statute of limitations. Do you think Carol Baskin is involved? I don't know if Carol Baskin pulled the trigger or committed the the murder of Don Lewis. I think Carol knows a lot more than what she said, though. I think she has information. I mean, she's done things. She did things after he went missing that his associates and friends say he would went ballistic. You know, like gave she gave his gun collection to the handyman Kenny Farr. She took his office and brought it back to Wildlife on Easy Street. She broke into it. She disconnected his cell phone. Um, her actions showed that she knew he was never coming back. In leading up to this interview with you, you actually sent me a clip that you found um, that she had just posted online. And then how does that fit into the documents that you've been looking into? One of the things that is very interesting about this case is Carol publishes one to two videos a day. And she reads these diary entries that she has now. Someone has the diary entries right now, and she knows it. So I think what she's doing is putting all this stuff out there before someone else does. But in the diary entry that she did last night, it's dated January 30th, 1997. But she says on January, I think it's the 28th, that Don had her write up the will and the power of attorney so that she would be left with nothing or something to that effect. So that's January 28th. And then if, if you look at the actual power of attorney and the will that came into play, the dates on that don't match the, the dates on her diary entry. January 27th, 1997. Don did not show up tonight to feed the cats he usually feeds. He came in after 10 p.m., but he refused to say where he had been. January 28th, 1997. Don woke up in a wonderful mood. We made love, went out to breakfast, and he agreed to allow me to ensure the sanctuary. Finally. He said he wants to make sure I am always taken care of, and he even had me draft a will and a power of attorney. He had me change the will a few times because he seemed to just delight in making sure that none of his greedy kids, as he said, were in it. There are certain things that stick out in the video. She really tries to um, paint the family in a negative light, which is really terrible for, for a family that is grieving. Yeah, yeah, she calls them, well, she says that Don called them greedy because, you know, just not long before this supposed creation of the will and the power of attorney that she says happened in January, um, Don's ex-wife took him back to court because previously six years late or six years previous, they went to court or some. Yeah, I think it was six years previous. They went to court for their divorce and Gladys, his ex-wife, was awarded a certain amount of money. And, you know, they were married for, I think, 34 years. And then years later, one of the daughters came across some records or Gail or uh, Gladys somehow figured out that Don lied about the money that he had during their divorce. So Gladys took him back to court to get her fair share. And 
Gail and Linda both had worked for Don. So they were subpoenaed because they had to testify about these records and, you know, how did this stuff come about? So they had to explain, you know, this financial stuff because they worked there. And then Gladys was awarded some more money. And with that, when that happened, Carol claims that Don disowned his daughters because they testified against him. However, um, he sent them Christmas cards in, you know, around Christmas of 1996. Donna, the oldest daughter, went out to visit him on Father's Day weekend in 97, like June 14th. She was out there all afternoon with her sons. I mean, if he really disowned them, it's an odd behavior to have one of them come out and spend the afternoon with you. And then you're sending them Christmas cards. But in that video, she did, she did make the statement, you know, where... Don said that they were greedy, you know, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a very nice thing to do because these are daughters who, you know, they are still grieving even 23 years later. They don't know what happened to their dad. And and I hope that your work and work of podcasts like mine and, and other folks out there really do help lead to answers eventually. So thanks for talking. Um, but the bottom line in that video is the dates don't match. That's right. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she says in her diary entry, it's January. And here's something, when you look at those documents, and, you know, these documents, the signatures are, you know, um, Mark Sonner, who works for Robson Forensics. He, he analyzed... Don's signature on there and said it was traced from the marriage license when Don got married to Carol. But if you look in the court records, those documents were put into the court system in September of 97, a month after Don went missing. So now you have two, I mean, you, you have them put in the system after he went missing. You have her saying, you know, they were created in January that on the documents themselves, you know, they're dated November 21st, 1996. And then something you might not know, the notary on that document or on those documents is a Sandra Whitcop, who was the housekeeper out there. And someone actually called her and talked to her and asked her about these documents that she had notarized. And she didn't know what they were talking about. And her response was, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I was the housekeeper. That wow. Was her, that was her answer. And so you have a, oh, here's another one. Her notary stamp was actually mailed to Carol's house or her address. So you have a housekeeper that's a notary and they're getting their stamp mailed to a house where they're the housekeeper at. I mean, so, you know, some of the things you got to look at in these cases are means and opportunity and, and that kind of stuff. But, the fact that the stamp was mailed there, anybody could have used that. And we've actually matched that signature up with other signatures of hers, and they match exactly. Like they're copied and pasted. Like you can superimpose them. It's the same exact signature. Like there's nothing different about it. It's totally the same. So you have these documents that were so important after he went missing with because they gave control of the estate all the money 
and it looks like the notary's signature has been traced or copy and pasted. You have an expert who worked for the FBI, the Secret Service, and all this guy, this Mark Sonner guy, who says that the signature, Don's signature, was traced. And then I talked to one guy that worked out there that worked side by side with Don, and he told me, he said, I'm telling you right now, there was no way that Don would have signed a document with Susan Aronoff and Doug Edwards as witnesses. He said, because he didn't like those people. He said, matter of fact, he had kicked Susan off the property. He said, there's no way he would have signed a document like that and had them as the witnesses. And we know now in 2005, Susan Aronoff, who was the witness, actually recanted and said that Don wasn't there when she signed it. She also said it wasn't even her signature. So there's so many questions on just these documents when it comes to these signatures. And now we have this video that came out last night where she's saying the will and power of attorney, you know, Don had her do it in January. So it's, it just doesn't make any sense when you're trying to piece everything together, except that that's not when it was actually made. I mean, it just doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. There's something, there's something off with it. You know, there's just, it just doesn't add up. How would the family describe Don? How is he missed today? What type of person was he? I have some statements from the daughters that mm -hmm. they sent me. So I will, I'll just read you what they said. That way, um, I think I know how they would describe him, but it would be better if I just read what they, what they actually said. And I'm not going to name which, which daughter says what, um, but, and they're all going to say almost the same thing, but, um, Here's one, hardworking, energetic, knew how to will and deal, was adventurous. He tried to help people uh, when people were in trouble. He, he donated a lot of money and stuff to like children's homes. And I mean, they even have a plaque that one of these little places giving him where kids made for him because he would bring toys and clothes to them. Um, Another one says that um, he had a lifelong attraction to animals of all kinds. He loved the exotic breeds. He was giving, quirky, funny. Um, he enjoyed being around his grandchildren. He would push people to their max. Um, he had an uncanny knowledge to fix problems. I mean, these are all good traits for someone to have. And then um, I'll say this one for the people that know the oldest daughter, Donna, who is similar to Don, because she's when it comes to business stuff, she's uh, she's just like him. But anybody that knows her is going to know that she, this is her. Um, <clears throat> she says he was industrious. He thrived on work. He didn't play cards, golf. He didn't dine with friends. He was generous to the church, children's homes, those in need. He had no tolerance for laziness. He expected us to do our very best every single day. Um, there are many things I miss about my dad, but what I miss the most is his maverick spirit. He walked to the beat of a different drum. And by example, uh, he bestowed that same quality. Um, 
you know, those are good things to say about a person. Um, but that's how that's how the three daughters describe their dad. Well, thank you for sharing that, you know, and thanks for reaching out to them and being so close with them and and allowing them to be part of of this podcast to allow people to hear from them. You're welcome. It's I think it's important for people to, you know, understand that these are real people. And Don Lewis was a real person. Not not just a character in a show. What's the impact of the show? I mean, is it is it a good impact that people like yourself are getting involved and, and tips are coming forward or or has it been too much for the family in your in your personal perspective of it all? There's good and bad. I mean, the family is, you know, they're tired of reliving the story over and over. However, they are very appreciative of all of the um like the people involved, all the exposure. That's how, I mean, they are very grateful to the two producers of Netflix. Now, there's more than just the two, but I know they talked to the two, that they're very grateful. They said numerous times that, you know, if it wasn't for Rebecca and Eric, um, the group wouldn't be here. I mean, they love the group. They, they've said it um, many times. That back 23 years ago, they felt all alone. I mean, they and they were alone, but they said now it feels like they have an army of 3000 people behind them. Um, and then they, you know, I mean, mostly it's good. I mean, the exposure, all of the tips that are coming in. But then you do have, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these daughters are reliving their memories with their dad and there's no closure. They don't know what has happened. And then you have someone making videos on a daily basis, just bashing them and their dad. And that part of it's real hurtful to them. But um, I mean, overall, overall, it's been pretty positive for the case and the exposure. Do you think this case will ever be solved? I do. Yeah, I think um, we have some really good information that we're sitting on and um there's just certain things we have to do to confirm the information that we have. But I think it will be when the reward fund gets set up. Um, I think also there's there's also a memorial August 15th in um, it's going to be in the Tampa area. But I think that that memorial will help with some of the exposure. And I think someone will come forward with information when when the time is right um but yeah i think it is i think it is solvable i think it will be solved um early next year now carol is not a suspect there's been no arrests in this case there's been is there any is she a suspect is carol baskin a suspect not to the sheriff's department no they um the sheriff went on tmz and said they didn't have any suspects (laughs) i mean to the sheriff's department, she's not a suspect. To a lot of other people, she's a suspect. Now, when I reached out to Carol Baskin... Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's Carol at Big Cat Rescue. She didn't call me cool cat or kitten, but she did write me this email response, which reads, Sorry I'm not doing interviews at this time. Due to the double punch of COVID-19 and the mischaracterization of us in Tiger King, ending our ability to give guided tours of the sanctuary, we have lost one-third of our income 
and have had to let go of 10 of our 20 staff and contractors. My husband and I have stopped taking a paycheck as well, despite the fact that all of us are having to do twice the work and keep the sanctuary running. With more than 50 hungry wildcats to feed, we have to work harder than ever to ensure their safety and comfort. Now let's just pause right there. She and her husband have stopped taking paychecks. They say times are tough, but you can find her on Cameo, ready to do videos at $300 a pop, like this. We're gonna party like it's your birthday. We're gonna sit Bacardi like it's your birthday. Corona is not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not Carol Baskin's fault. You are absolutely wrong about me, and I am sorry that you fell for the narrative that was put out in Tiger King. <laughs> it was more about reality TV than any kind of a documentary, let me tell you. All right, enough of that. Let's get back to this letter that she wrote me, which reads, I have no interest in doing any public interviews at this time. Feel free to use quotes and clips that I've posted from these pages. And then she gave me a long list of social media pages that she posts clips to every day. Here's one of them. Hi, I'm Carol Baskin from Big Cat Rescue. It's April the 10th and I have gotten so much hate mail from people who ignorantly believed what they saw on Netflix in Tiger King was true. Fritz wants to make this a murder and says somebody wanted to get rid of Don Lewis. He should tell us who then because it wasn't me. If I wanted to be rid of him, I could have divorced him and come out financially secure. I could have let him keep going in the cat's cages until one of them killed him, but instead I put locks on the cages. I could have let him, I could have let him fly solo and not trained to fly to keep us both safe. I could have let him run wild in Costa Rica, but instead found an attorney to try and keep him as safe as possible. Don did make a lot of enemies, and Fritz seems to know who they were, but the producer seemed to use his trash talk as being incriminating toward me. 29 minutes, 19 seconds. Vernon Yates has trotted back out to back up Joe's claims about Don being in the septic tank. None were open or under construction at the time of Don's disappearance, and the sheriff's office could easily have verified that via county permits that were pulled around that time if they had had any doubt. Anyone who wants to put in the money to replace our septic tanks is welcome to dig them all up. There just isn't any reason or evidence to believe murder was more likely than a tragic accident. But it seems Tiger King wants the viewer to believe there is. Has she ever contacted you? No, she hasn't. And I've, I've called her. I've left messages with her. Um, she had put a video out where she said if anybody wants to come dig up the septic system, that they would do it as long as they paid for a new one to be installed. So I took her up on the offer. I emailed her about it. I called her, left her a voicemail, said, we'll dig it up and we'll put a new one in for you. And um, she has not returned my calls. She has not returned my emails. Um, she did make a video about me, though, um, three or four weeks ago. Uh, but no, she, she will not reach out to me. What was the video? I had gotten a letter that she had written to Gladys Lewis back in the 80s. And then she had written a manuscript, like an eight-page manuscript, and I had gotten a, gotten a hold of that. And in one of my early videos, I published some of it. And Carol finally saw the video, and she did a whole video, a 40-minute video, on my video with part of her manuscript. And I haven't released, uh, like, pages four through eight yet, but she'd asked... You know, she said, well, maybe Gladys or Ripper would um, let me see the rest of this. 
that she hasn't reached out to me for. She has my phone number. She has my email address, but she hasn't reached out to me for it. How about, you know, you bring a copy of it if she allows you to dig up the septic tank. She can read it while the work's being done. I think that's a great idea. Um, I'll give you her phone number if you want to call her and set that up. But I would be more than happy. I'll bring it and we'll dig up the septic. But she did, um, after after some time went by, she put out another disclaimer saying that only the sheriff's department could dig it up and no cameras and no YouTubers. That's what she said at a later time. <laughs> I, Speaking I of, how do, we, how do we follow you? You can just Google Ripper Jack Media, um, and it's, it's all over. I have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast. I have a Twitter. Um, just, just Google Ripper Jack Media, and it's all over. I mean, I'll just pop up. And then um, the Facebook group is called the Don Lewis uh, Code Case Files Facebook group. How can we help? The family. Is there a foundation? Is there a fund? Is there a scholarship? Is, is there anything that we can do? There is a reward fund that was set up just uh, a little over a week ago. There's a GoFundMe. We're, we're raising money for a reward. Our goal is $100,000. I think we're around 11000 right now. Um, people can just uh, search Don Lewis and then um, reward fund. And then his oldest daughter's name is Donna Pettis. But if they just Google Don Lewis Reward Fund Donna Pettis, it pulls up that reward fund. It's also in our Facebook group. Um, we have it as one of the notifications in there, the reward fund. But the reward is for um, you know the for tips. It'll be given to the you know either person or persons who come forward with information that lead to the arrest and conviction of the murder of Don Lewis. And if nobody ever comes forward, they're going to put a time limit on the reward. If nobody ever comes forward, they're going to donate the money to a, a charity or a nonprofit or something where somebody does, um, you know, where they help people, you know, with either cases or whatever it may be. But um, they haven't said where it's going yet, but I don't think, I don't think they'll end up donating it. I mean, I think there's, I think there's someone out there that has the information that needs to come forward, but they're scared to come forward because, um, you know, there's, without me saying too much, people that are in this animal exotic world that have animals are scared to come forward because they're scared they'll lose their animals. And it's true. They will be targeted by, um, it's, it's, it's sad that, you could have these animals legally, but if you come forward with information against someone, um, there's an entity out there that will actually come after you and take your animals away from you. And to some of these people, their animals are like their kids, and they're just not going to risk losing that. But with $100,000, they can fight. They can fight against that and not be scared or lose their property that they're living on. Um, so that's what the reward fund is for. There's not any other um, things set up. That's the only thing that's been set up so far. Okay. Thank you. And please stay in touch. Okay. I will. I will. Take care, man. Stay safe. Jack Don Lewis was last seen on August 18th, 1997. He was 5'10", 170 pounds, and he's 81 years old. 
If you have any information in the disappearance of Don Lewis, contact the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office at 813-247-8200. As always, I'll post some case photos and documents on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, and social media accounts and YouTube channel under the same name. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now, a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Again, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. The first is from Sewell. It says, yes, love, love the podcast. I binged all the episodes as soon as I found it. Keep them coming, and we will. It's season two. Um, The second one says, great job, and it's from Steven. Keep up the great work. You always keep me intrigued. Well, I try. Thanks for writing that. And again, thank you for uh, writing reviews and supporting the podcast. We're up against networks, TV channels. It's easy. It's free. Just hit five star, subscribe, tell a friend, write a review, and include your real name and your podcast name. If you're a podcaster, you'll get a double shout out. And speaking of podcasts, I feel like everyone on Twitter always has the same question. People that follow me, what podcast recommendations do you have? So at the end of every episode, I'm trying to share my podcast that I'm listening to this week. It's Murderific and Resolved Mysteries. Take a listen. Maine, the northernmost state in America, usually thought of as a quaint, safe vacation destination. Our motto is, the way life should be. But did you know serial killer John Joseph Jobert was raised in Maine and was convicted of three stabbing murders of young boys? or the unsolved abduction of baby girl Ayla Reynolds, supposedly stolen from her bed near Christmas 2011. Her body has never been found. These are just two of the main stories Murderific has covered. We cover crimes from all areas and main cases as well. Murderific True Crime Podcast, hosted by me, Bernadette, can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to murderific.com. We will be executing podcasts one crime at a time. Hi, we're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin, and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries Podcast. Our podcast follows the 80s and 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. We have a love for true crime and the unsolved. If you don't remember Unsolved Mysteries, we forgive you, but you don't have to know to get into our show. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, or just stories about weird shit like Bigfoot, this is your podcast. The stories we cover range from totally ridiculous to truly heartbreaking. We do detailed research on all of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired, then drink some wine and give you the latest updates on every case. We talk about stories that will leave you laughing, crying, and occasionally outraged. Resolve Mysteries podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite pods. Join us and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. mystery.